0: Today I will be preaching out of Hebrews chapter 1, verses 8 through the end of the chapter, verse 14. Hear now the word of the Lord. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, have laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Faith comes from hearing, and hearing the word of God. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for these words, this mighty proclamation of the superior kingdom of Jesus Christ above all kingdoms, namely our imaginary ones for ourselves. May we see this imagery of reality that Christ has proclaimed and accomplished and is now reigning over so that we may not only submit, but to enjoy this gladness and goodness that your Son has been anointed with. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Here we continue to go with this comparison and contrast, where we are comparing the glory of angels to the glory of Christ where it's mainly highlighting for us the great superiority of Christ over something that we might think to be glorious, such as angels. Now granted, I mentioned that in this particular time, because of the the dispensation between the the time of the Old and New Testament, many people believe that the early church was or the people of God were caught up with focusing on, too much on angels and I would even say that we would even do that here or other types of distractions of things that we might find glorious instead of looking at the glorious superiority of who Christ is and so the writer of Hebrews is making an argument to elevate and to focus on but also to be assured and strengthened and comforted by the superiority of Christ Because it is not in angels that we find salvation, but in Christ that we find salvation. And so the writer of Hebrews actually ends in this particular passage with focusing on that this great superiority is for our benefit. Now what we have here in this passage is two particular passages from the Psalms, again, elevating and highlighting that superiority of Christ's kingdom. And I'm going to jump right into this really quickly, but I want all of you and I think kids particularly, this should be something easy for you to do. I know for my kids, with the kind of stories that they re- are reading, I know a lot of them are going through Tolkien right now with the Lord of the Rings, but this imagery and this understanding of kings and the power of, of one on a throne in a scepter, these things that are thrown in these passages for us to not just give us an imagery of this idea of Christ's kingdom, but it's imagery of the reality. A lot of times we will look at things and we'll say, well, that's kind of a nice um, an example or maybe an allegory or a representation of something that's like this. But in this case, it's not just something that is like, but it is actually the reality of the greatest kingdom, the greatest throne, the greatest scepter, and the greatest anointing that any king could ever receive. And so the writer here gives us this snapshot, which I think is a bridge passage because it's in right in the middle of Psalm 45. And Psalm 45 has two primary themes. <clears throat> if you have your Bibles with you, flip over to Psalm 45. I'm not going to read all of the psalm. I've been learning my lesson a little bit that it... Really is, if I read everything to you all, it's just going to take a long time. So I'm going to try to go through a little bit more quickly to you. So in Psalm 45, if you can look in the first five verses, I'm just going to highlight a couple of phrases for you to get the idea of what's going on here. Well, first of all, it begins with where this particular um, snapshot there in the Hebrews of where it's is referencing this passage, where it kind of ends. It says, "My heart overflows." with a pleasing theme. And so quickly, we're tying this in with this idea of the oil of gladness. And I want to I focus a lot on the oil of gladness today because that's kind of a, a unique um, concept of what is the oil of gladness and so in the psalm where the oil of gladness is mentioned one of the places where the oil of gladness is mentioned he starts out the psalm by saying my heart overflows with a pleasing theme I want to highlight this word pleasing that this is something that is to be an encouragement to be a, a pleasing thing to our pleasures to be a delight for us to hear this is not one of those passages kind of like the passage that I gave you last Week in Deuteronomy, that was to be an admonishing one. Though there is an admonishment interwoven with this, it is overall, this psalm is one to bring us to a place of pleasure and a place of comfort. So my heart overflows with a pleasing theme. And then if you fast forward a little bit further, you'll see uh, phrases like, gird your sword on your thigh. So as we think about a scepter and a throne and we think about the anointing of the oil of gladness, we have here also that this particular king has a sword on his thigh. Fast forward a little bit, the next thing you see is, "...in your majesty ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness." So as we're thinking about this pleasing theme, we see this victorious one who is riding out. You can imagine this this great victorious military conqueror who is riding in victory with a sword on his thigh, and he is riding for the cause of truth, meekness, and righteousness. Now, I want us to stop there and think about those three things, truth, meekness, and and righteousness. Now, I i don't know about you, but I typically, when I'm dwelling on truth and I'm thinking about righteousness, and if I'm actually in a place where I feel confident enough to feel like this is something that I could admonish upon, admonish to other people, or proclaim to other people, or if I'm thinking about our society and our culture, and I'll go, well, our, our culture is not people of truth and righteousness. Look at these foolish people. Look what's wrong with all of these people. One of the elements that I typically don't have in my heart is the one that's right in the middle between truth and righteousness, and it is meekness. Here we have in this particular description this image of this great conqueror who is going out victoriously with a sword on his thigh, and he is riding before the cause of truth and righteousness, but to balance it in the middle of that is that he is a conqueror with meekness. And it's a blessing right there as we see that image. It is an encouraging image to think of because I think if we know ourselves very much that when we do have self-righteous indignation or even faithful contemplation about other people or maybe even our own sin often we miss that balance of meekness. But this great conqueror that is our hope, the one that is going to allow our hearts to overflow with a pleasing theme, he is able to ride out victoriously with this symbol of justice on his thigh, balancing truth and righteousness with meekness. And then he says here that your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies, the peoples fall under you. as we know that the sword, the word of the Lord is a two-edged sword in that it has a multifaceted effect. and his arrows do the same kind of theme that as those arrows are shot, they're not just there to wound or to lame, but they will go to the heart of his enemies. On one side of looking at this, when we think about the arrows piercing the heart of his enemies, it will kill his enemies but else also as we consider this as an actual pleasing theme, that his arrows actually pierce us into the heart, to kill that part of us that is nothing but vileness and sin and wickedness, which is the ultimate element of the enemy of God. And then we see there in the middle, In verse 6, we see how this is a bridge passage because we see God's military conquest of this great victor, but we see this bridge. It says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever, showing that this particular king and conqueror, that it is not like the kings and the conquerors of this age, that it's going to be passing away and falling away, that this particular one is Forever and ever, but here we have an amazing proclamation when we think about it specifically in light of what Hebrews is telling us. It says that God says of this great conqueror as he is speaking to his son, he says, Your throne, O God, that the heavenly Father is proclaiming that this victorious, victorious, conqueror is God. That this conqueror is God. He's not just a, a hero of philosophy or a hero of goodness. He's not just a, another teacher of good things. He is God incarnate. Now, I really think we have to stop and just dwell upon that, because in this particular age, I am certain with all certainty that Satan wants to continue to pummel us with the idea, and he's happy, he is perfectly fine with us accepting the idea that Jesus is a good teacher, or a good guy, or he was a hero of a people. But he does not want you to proclaim and dwell and meditate and to live and to receive comfort and confidence that Jesus Christ is God. And we see this. We see this in the churches today. We see how mainline churches have surrendered this part. I'll remind you that, you know, you know my background and you know that we are interwoven with Presbyterianism, but the Mainline Presbyterian denomination in our country does not discipline their pastors if in their conscience they cannot say that Jesus is God. That dissolves anyone's right to stand in a pulpit. Not by my opinion, but by Christ himself. That dissolves really the legitimacy of any organization that would call themselves a church because Peter said, what he said in response to who Jesus is you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You are God. And it is upon that that the church is built. And brothers and sisters, you may think, I already believe that. Why is he spending so much time on that? It's because Satan is going to continue to try to convince our posture. We might think, yeah, I believe that Jesus is divine. I believe that he was virgin born and I believe that he is God, but he wants you not to dwell upon that or to respond to your day-to-day activities as if that is the case or to respond to your obedience to his calling as if that is the case. And he wants you to start categorizing your religion in light of just another good path of goodness in this world. But no, Jesus Christ is God. His scepter of his kingdom is a scepter of uprighteousness, uprightness. He says, You have love, righteousness, and hated wickedness. This authority symbol of scepter, that's what it is. Scepter is kind of an awkward thing. You know, it's a staff, but it's a fancy staff, you know, and you're always thinking whap somebody over the head with it. It looks like you, know, you wouldn't want to be standing too close to somebody with a scepter. But ultimately it's a sign of his authority. We see this still in countries that still um, utilize a, a royal um, monarchy type of in most cases it's more of a, of a facade of, instead of a reality of their government. But the scepter is used to show that there is authority in this one who is sovereign. Well, Jesus' scepter, his authority is, is built upon uprightness and that he loves righteousness and hates wickedness. And then again it says, Therefore God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions and this is why the Hebrew writer is using this particular bridge passage is to highlight that beyond the companions of angels by beyond any other kind of authority or any other kind of one that is great even by the greatness that God has bestowed upon them that this king has been anointed has been given this authority and given this power of anointing and it is an oil of gladness. Now, if you've studied just that phrase alone, which we don't have time to just hone in on that all day long, but the oil of gladness is, is the Holy Spirit. We see that the Holy Spirit comes upon Christ when he is baptized and he comes out of the river. We see that the Holy Spirit comes upon him, and we know that the fruit of the Spirit is is one that is parallel to gladness, but it is this one, and it's a a beautiful phrase, because this oil of gladness shows, one, this uh, anointing and appointment of power, victorious rule and authority, but it is also one that is the power of the Holy Spirit is upon him. We see that Christ proclaims that about himself when he is speaking and reading Isaiah, that I have been given this anointing of the Holy Spirit, that it is a powerful one. It is not one that is just an authority by name or by appointment, but it is one that is effective with power. So you have the authority, you have the power, but you have this gladness, this Goodness, this pleasure, this wonderful, uplifting joy and pleasure is inside of this anointing that Jesus has. And this is why I think this today's particular passage, maybe in contrast to even last week's passage, is definitely a, a passage of comfort. That this victorious reign of Christ is one that is uplifting, and strengthening, and that it is done so backed behind with authority and with power. But if we go further in this psalm passage in verses 8 through 17, we see that this victorious military conqueror with the bridge of the highlighting of his victorious kingdom is a husband. That this Where this is all leading up to is a wedding. We go from this military conqueror image, this kingdom image, to the ultimate goal, the ultimate place of where this oil of gladness has appointed this victorious conqueror to go. It is to go to a wedding. And quickly, you can see in the passage there in verse 8 that the themes and the imagery changes. Your robes, are fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. From ivory palaces, stringed instruments make you glad. Daughters of the kings are among your ladies of honors. At your right hand stands the queen in gold of a Hear, old oh daughter, and consider and incline your ear. Forget your people and your father's house, and the king will desire your beauty. Since he is your lord, bow to him. The people of Tyre will seek your favor with gifts, the richest of people. All glorious is the princess in her, her chamber, with robes interwoven with gold. In many colored robes she is led to the king, with her virgin companions following behind her. With joy and gladness they are led along as they enter the palace of the king. In place of your father shall be your sons. You will make them princes in all the earth. I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, nations will praise you forever and ever. What a beautiful psalm, how it transitions from this powerful, victorious military conqueror to this reigning king with the greatest kingdom ever. And then we see that this ultimate goal of this conquering, this ultimate goal of this kingdom, is this intimate marriage with his people. That is, in almost a wrapping up of the whole purpose and point of Jesus Christ's ministry, is to bring about this great gladness. It is not there just to show forth this firmness of of righteousness in in the law but it is to bring forth this purpose of gladness and pleasure. God is not a killjoy. He is not wanting to remove pleasure from our life. He is wanting us to experience the reality of that pleasure. Everything else that is pleasure that is opposed to the kingdom of God is only a facade. It is only an imagination. It's a counterfeit that will always lead in destruction and death. So we have military conquest mighty kingdom, glorious wedding. This imagery is not just an imagery of an idea of what it's like to be with God, but it is truly our ultimate reality of our end. And here with this oil of gladness, we are encouraged that this kingdom has been granted to this victor for the purposes of pleasure and delight in his gratification and ours. Now we might think that seems... Lofty and high, and it is. It seems removed from the realities of our day. I was just talking to Kevin, and he said, "Man, this week has just been filling off." And I'm like, "Man, we've, we've been going for almost two weeks in our home, including even last night. We've been really off. It hasn't it hasn't been a lot of senses of gladness in our home. There hasn't been a lot of the just the aromas that you see there at the end of that psalm going on in our speech and in our attitudes." And so that's why the psalm, why the, the writer of the Hebrews and the psalmist is giving us this is because God is still conquering over us. He is still piercing those arrows into our hearts. And he brings it down for us as the writer of Hebrews gives us this next psalm because here we see this great oil of gladness and this great beautiful story of what the reality of what Christ's purposes are. And then the writer of Hebrews throws in Psalm 102. Psalm 102. In Psalm 102, it doesn't, he doesn't highlight it here. He actually, instead of giving us a, a bridge passage, he gives us a kind of a summary passage. But if you flip over to Psalm 102, in the first 12 verses, you hear words like, let my cry come to you. Do not hide your face from me in, my, in the day of my distress. For my days pass away like smoke. And my bones burn like a furnace. My heart is struck down like grass and has withered. I forget to eat my bread. Because of my loud groaning, my bones cling to my flesh. My enemies taunt me. Here, the writer of the psalm says that his bread is ashes and his drink is mingled with tears and he says that it's because of your indignation and your anger and he, he says that God is throwing him down and that his days are like an evening shadow and he withers away like grass now that's a little closer to home <laughs> we experience that we should If we are struggling and furthering in the kingdom and growing in grace, we often experience that in multiple ways. One, because of the results of our own sin. Here we see the psalmist saying that it is due to your anger and your indignation that I am experiencing this brokenness. Sometimes it's because of other people's sin, as it is often the case whenever you are ministering in places like the abortion mill or sometimes just ministering in your home, whenever you're trying to proclaim truth, and Satan is very active in those moments, there will be this indignation and this suffering that will come through this battle as Christ continues to conquer over our hearts. The first part of this psalm is very much down to earth. And so the writer of Hebrews is wanting us to take, not to separate like two different places of of what's going on, like everything's nice and happy and pleasing in this area, and everything's miserable here. But just as Christ's incarnation came to us, he is bringing forth this great imagery of reality smack dab in the middle of where we are in our own life. Verse 13 of That particular psalm, it says, But you, our favorite words in Scripture, but you, O Lord, are enthroned forever. Here he's bringing this kingdom down to the midst, in the midst of our suffering. And it says that you will arise and have pity on Zion. Later on it says, Nations will fear the name of the Lord, and all the kings of the earth will fear your glory. For the Lord builds up Zion. Here we have the psalmist says, you have thrown me down, but now we see that this this great conquering king is going to build up Zion, and he will appear in his glory because he regards the prayer of the destitute and does not despise their prayer. Because this great and mighty conqueror is a meek, mighty conqueror. He will hear the prayers of the destitute So that the people yet to be created, which is us, our call of worship today, may praise the Lord. He looks down from his holy height and he hears the groans of the prisoners to set free those who are doomed to die. Our condition as an enemy of God is to be those who would receive the judgment and the wrath of God. But instead, he allows us to declare in Zion the name of the Lord and in Jerusalem his praise. And then he reminds us that all of this that we see here, here in verse 25, says, Of old you have laid the foundations of the earth, that he created them, that God, everything that you have here in this house called earth, and everything in the heavens, are the work of whose hands? It is actually the work of Jesus's hands. And this is like, whoa, you're saying that Jesus is the one who created. Yes, this great king it is by his word. We see it in John 1, 1, that he was there. And it is for him and by him that all things were made. He's saying that all of this that you see here will perish but Christ will remain, his kingdom will remain, that they will all wear out like a garment and you will change them like a robe. They will pass away, but Jesus is the same. His kingdom is the same. His years have no end. And the children of the servants shall dwell secure. Their offspring shall be established before you. Here we have the promise. That this great and mighty conqueror, this great and mighty king, this great and wondrous, loving, steadfast, faithfully faithful husband, will come to us in our despair. And that as we look at our despair, as we look at our difficult weeks, as we look at the battles that we fight, that we have to understand that things are passing away and Jesus is remaining even in those things there's nothing separated and removed that every struggle every conflict everything on this earth even every pleasure that we have on this earth that the only ones that will continue are the ones that are rooted in him and that he is doing this for the sake of our salvation last year we got to enjoy the wedding of kevin and abigail and and, you know, there a lot that went into it, um, you know, and it, and it wasn't as expensive and as busy as some weddings are, but there's a lot that goes into it, decorations and a cake and preparations and planning. And I was thinking as I was thinking about this particular passage, how, you know, all of those things are gone now, you know, there's, there's they're not at the church building, they're not at, you know, they're not at the place there at Still Creek where we had the reception. All those things are kind of distributed and dispersed. But the wedding, the marriage is still here. Now, of course, on an earthly marriage, there's no guarantee that those things will stay secure. Death can occur. All kinds of unfortunate things can occur. These are truly just representations and participations of the great reality of the wedding feast with Christ. But they were all temporary items and circumstances to celebrate and to establish and begin this intimate marriage relationship between Kevin and Abigail. And what we see here in how the writer of the Hebrews is laying this out for us is that everything that you see, this victorious kingdom and everything on this earth, that Christ himself created and for the purposes was a preparation, a passing away preparation for something that is going to eternally last. Something that will sustain beyond the temporary purpose. And you, I think it's important for us to think about that in every respect and how the... The the writer of the Hebrews is pointing this out, which is ultimately God teaching us, is that as we think about this creation, especially in that last psalm there, is that all of this is passing away, but he is remaining. And in the the preceding passages that all of this purposes is for this great wedding. So what he is saying is that everything you see, including our despair and our conflict and our difficulty, is to highlight the glory of the wedding. To highlight the glory of the marriage, even. That that's the purpose of Jesus Christ. And that is why it is one of gladness and goodness. And this is food and encouragement for us this day. That as we face our difficulties and face this wrangling, even with our own sin and the sin of others and the consequences of those things, and even our not-so-glad feelings... They're passing away for the purpose of gladness, for the purposes of eternal pleasure. Think about your stuff. Think about your schedules. Think about the things that you're dwelling on. Think about your labors. All of that stuff that you've got going on in your life is temporary. And is passing. And believe it or not, it's only for one single purpose. It is for the glory of his marriage with his people. And if you take much stock in it, if you dwell upon it, that is where we should be thinking of. If you're thinking, if you're putting a lot of effort and energy into those particular things, thinking that it's going to be for your own temporal glory, or for your own temporal pleasure, you will learn that Jesus is a jealous God. Mm -hmm. He will only temporarily allow you to enjoy that moment, and he will take it away from you. I mean, imagine going to any wedding, coming in in your sweatpants and t-shirt, coming in and going up to the food and just picking through it, you know, taking stuff off of the other people's table and putting it in there. well, you wouldn't have any this yet. well, my pants today, I have pockets in there too. <laughs> and you just kinda stretch yourself out and you're enjoying all of the things for the wedding feast. And then somebody comes up to you and go, Who are you? <laughs> what are you doing here? What are you what's going on? Do you not know what this is? You know what the world says? Do you know what we often say as we are going through our day? Who, whose wedding is this? You don't even think about whose wedding it is. The audacity to go around in that place of preparation and celebration and not even to acknowledge who it's all for. And we do this when we are not dwelling upon this superiority of who Jesus Christ is, and we're not thinking about the ultimate purpose in the church. People are walking away from the church. People are walking away from the bride of Christ. And they're ultimately walking away from Jesus Christ. We would think that would be obnoxious. We would think that would be outrageous and outlandish, But that is the current state of not only this world, but of the church, enjoying the feast. Well, in Matthew 22, verse 11 through 14, you can see that I didn't make up this analogy. It says, but when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there was a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. The king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. Do you have this wedding garment? As we are here standing with our breath and our life amongst God's people, in supposedly in his praise and in his worship are we those who can say when the master comes and says how did you get in here what are we going to present to him well in deuteronomy chapter 28 verse 47 there is this admonition that is very similar to the end of the previous passage i just read it says because you did not serve the lord your god with joyfulness and gladness of heart. Because of abundance of all things, therefore you shall serve your enemies, whom the Lord will send against you in hunger and thirst and in, in nakedness and in lacking everything. And he will put a yoke of iron on your neck until he has destroyed you. That humility that I was speaking about in our confession of faith should be our response. That thanksgiving, there should be this Humility. There should be this Psalm 102 of understanding our despair and our place of weakness. Even in light of his judgment, we should feel this brokenness. And when we understand the victorious conquering king husband is now before us, we should respond with joyfulness and gladness of heart if we are those who are truly being conquered by jesus first with repentance and then with faith and his assurance of his continual kingdom we will have ourselves clothed with not only humility but with joyfulness and gladness of heart now not to be a discouragement to you you can say well right now i'm not in a place of joyfulness i'm not in a place with gladness of heart i can't Seem to conjure it up. You know, it's one of the worst things when, when you're feeling depressed and down and somebody comes up and they'll say, hey, cheer up. <laughs> like, yeah, like I just, oh, I didn't even think about that. Great idea. Now <laughs> yeah, I feel great. <laughs> but again, when we think about the anointment of the oil of gladness, I told you that it was not only authority, and that it is not only the, the, the sense of pleasure and goodness, but it is powerful. And that is why we're still here, people. That is why we're here and we're not on the other side of glory, is that he is still conquering over us. Because this anointment that we see in Isaiah 61.1, it says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to those who are poor those who are poor without blindness and even joyfulness. So he has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. The great thing about preaching passages like this in the jail is because it's that imagery of reality for them, (laughs) that we all are often are bound like these inmates are, In the greater reality. But they can see very stark imagery of their own boundness. And likely if you think about your sin. And if you put yourself in the place of that psalmist. You will see how you're still often daily bound to these passing things. We don't want to continue to be bound to those passing things. Imagine yourself bound to a bonfire. To a big log that's inside of a great bonfire that's about to be lit. We want to be free to these things that are passing away. And what Jesus says, that he has been anointed to bring good news. It is he who brings that liberty. Because he has this oil of gladness that is the Holy Spirit that has power. And he promises that upon his people. And we see that in Acts, how the Holy Spirit is flowing over us. Bringing us to conviction And bringing us to assurance. And we might think, well, you know, that's just still, that's Jesus. Well, Jesus has another term that he is actually probably more familiar with, that we are more familiar with, that he was more associated with, that should be an assurance to us. In Isaiah 53, it says that he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows. Acquainted with grief, and is one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. But Jesus is a man of sorrows. He is both the man of sorrows who is anointed with the oil of gladness. He has come all the way to us in the depths of our despair, the depths of our sin, the depths of our destruction of our life because of the indignation of him. He took on the cross, both being a man of sorrow and a one anointed by the oil of gladness. And it says that we'll see later on in Hebrews 12, says that when we look to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy, for the pleasure For the gladness that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Luke 9, 53, but the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples James and John saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them because, yes, he is one with righteous indignation toward us, that is true righteous indignation. But he is one with meekness in that righteousness and truth because he has come to rescue us from that bonfire. We see here at the end of this particular passage. As the writer of Hebrews wraps it up, he says, and to the angels, who, he says, and to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Now, kids, everybody pay attention on this one. So, so far, we have a throne, an elevated throne, with the Son of God, who has a sword on his thigh, holding a scepter, with the oil of gladness over him. And it says that he will make his enemies a footstool for his feet. What is a footstool? But you're wondering, is he going to ask us any more questions? What is a footstool? Something you prop your feet up on. Something you prop your feet up on. What's it, what's what's the purpose of that? Why do you need that? I mean, I know you're short. You need it sometimes to get to the peanut butter. But when you're sitting down, what is a footstool's usefulness? Elevate your feet. To elevate your feet. What's the result of that? You're reclining, what's the result of reclining? Comfort. comfort, and what are you? What kind of general posture are you in when you are reclining and in comfort? Resting. What's that? Resting. You're resting here. It says that, and this is from Psalm 110, that the enemies of God will prop up the feet of of this victorious conqueror. So here you have him on his throne with a sword and a scepter covered with the oil of gladness and his enemies, the very purposes of the enemies of God, the very purposes of all the things that we might see to be difficult, all the things that bring us down, even the shame upon the earth, that there it is that is going to lift him up and it will ultimately be a resting place for him. In Psalm 110, 1 through 3, it says, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. He is giving us those garments. That power is clothing us that we will offer ourselves. That there are two kinds of enemies in this ultimate reality. The enemies that will be brought into offering ourselves freely for his worship. And the others that will be vessels of destruction that will still bring glory to his righteousness. In Deuteronomy 28, just to let you know that Deuteronomy is sometimes... Oh, not Deuteronomy 28. Sorry, I've I've already been on there. Sorry. Isaiah 66, it says that the Lord, in light of what we just said about the footstool, it says in Isaiah 66, 1 through 2, it says, Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne, and earth, the earth, is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me, and what is the place of my rest? All things my hand has made, so all things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Here he is saying not just the enemies are his footstool, but just as we have from the writer of Hebrews, all of this earth, that is passing away, its own purpose is to elevate the Lord, but is this elevation and it's also rest. One of the things that I didn't tell you, but the word gladness, one of the best parallels, both in the Hebrew and in the Greek, when we think about the word gladness, it is exaltation. And exaltation is a great word in this particular context because when we think about exaltation, we can think about it as how God is exalted and lifted up. But there is this pleasure word that's also with exaltation that we, when we are feeling the greatest pleasure and the greatest goodness, we feel exaltation because we too are lifted up in that pleasure and rest. And here, Jesus' feet, everything that we know about this earth, even the enemies and all the difficulties of life, will ultimately bring his feet to a place of exaltation and glad rest. And he tells us to be there with him. This table is a table of exaltation. It exalts him in who he is on the throne. And he says, come and eat and taste how the Lord is good. We get to prop our feet up with the Lord on a footstool. There's nothing else that a footstool does other than to elevate and to bring forth rest. And here... We are told that even in our striving and even in our difficulty, and hopefully even in our repentance and humble and contrite spirit, we will have his rest. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we.